Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The beer industry may say that it is what St. Louis is best known for, but our money is on music and musicians associated with this city, past and present. I could list scores of contributors, but I'll let my guests do that. Steve Pick and Amanda Doyle have put together a handsome coffee table book titled St. Louis Sound, an Illustrated Timeline. This goes beyond the Giants, the names uh, names everyone knows, that is, but it also includes more obscure but influential contributors to St. Louis music history. Amanda and Steve are with me in studio, and I welcome you both. Great to see you. Thanks for having us. Steve, obviously this is a labor of love for you, the music man of St. Louis. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. I mean, I've been involved in in music for 40 years and, and writing about it and playing it and selling it and playing it on the radio, so why not put out a book, too? Well, it's not just why not put out a book. (laughs) I mean, it's a book jam-packed with photos and history, and Amanda will talk about some of that history in just a moment, but it's a massive project. Yeah, it's uh, there are 177 entries in the book, and um, that is knowing that we could have easily doubled it or tripled it, you know, because every day people are saying, is this group in the book, and it turns out, no, they're not. But maybe volume two? Who knows? Volume two, boy. Roll up your sleeves and get ready to go to work. That would be a project. Amanda, I I notice you don't spend a lot of time on it, but when you talk about a timeline and taking music back, you're going all the way back to the Mississippians. (laughs) That's a thousand years ago. Right. Well, we do uh, condense the first part quite a bit, but we thought it was important to to talk about how um, the place that we live in became a place and really the the culture that was at Cahokia um, was kind of the first version of our metropolis now. So it was a huge thriving city, had a lot of little suburbs. They happened to be mounds, but uh, somewhat similar to our situation today. So we did start there and then came forward all the way. I think our last entry is from 2017. So we covered a lot of ground in 177 entries. I imagine it's pretty hard to dig up much uh, information about what kind of music was popular back in the uh, days of the Kokia mound <laughs> development. Yeah, there's not a billboard chart to refer to. But uh, but we did want to just put in, I mean, there's evidence of some of the instruments that existed. And obviously, we know ceremonial use of music was hugely important then, um, as it is today, honestly. So um, yeah, it was, it was fun to, to get that glimpse on it. Steve, when did uh, St. Louis really uh, make its mark on the music map, if you will? Well, I mean, I think it's been making its mark on the music map for at least 100 years. Um, there are many influential people from uh, St. Louis that that are nationally incredibly important. Um, everyone from Frankie Trumbauer and Jimmy Blanton in jazz to Miles Davis and Clark Terry on to uh, bluesmen such as Henry Townsend and... Uh, Chuck Berry, of course, Little Milton, Albert King, into uh, the 70s when Pavlov's Dog and Mama's Pride came out, into the 80s when Uncle Tupelo started, into the 2000s when Nellie started. I mean, it's, it's never stopped. There's always somebody from here going someplace. And Amanda, you, uh, you kind of begin it from your part of it with the St. Louis Symphony, which takes us back well over 100 years. Right. If you look at the um, the origins of our symphony, which is the second, I think has the distinction of being the second oldest continuously operating symphonic orchestra, um, it goes back to some of the German immigrants who were so key in setting up um, the way that our city looks today. So it's uh, back to the 1880s, and it's been an ongoing process. Is there a most influential decade, Steve, do you think, uh, going back to the days of the uh, early days of the symphony? 
you mean, uh, well, uh, in general, there's always been something going on, but you got to say the 50s maybe um, was St. Louis's heyday in a sense, in the, since Chuck Berry completely rewrote the rule book for, for a whole new form of music, rock and roll. He created the guitar signature licks and the, the very concepts of what you sang about. Um, lots and lots of things happened. Miles Davis was huge in the 50s, and yeah, that, was, that might be the decade. Be the, well, let's, let's listen to some of these guys. That uh, People will never get tired of listening to Chuck Berry, and of course, Maybelline is one of the big songs uh, for Mr. Berry, the late Mr. Berry. Chuck Berry, of course. Just how important, Steve, was Chuck Berry? Well, first of all, let, let's just give him props for the word motivating. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. If he, had, if he had done nothing else, that would be deserving of a statue in New City. Um, no, he, he was huge. I mean, the, the whole concept in the 1950s of popular music changed as a result of several artists, Elvis Presley, obviously, Chuck Berry. But Chuck Berry was a songwriter, a guitar player, and a performer all at the same time. And that's what everybody else had to be after he came. And doing the history of uh, Chuck Berry, Amanda, what, what were you looking for? What did you find about him that people didn't already know? You know, I think one of the most important things about Chuck Berry is, um, well, obviously the thing Steve mentioned, which is he created teenagerhood in a lot of ways, but the people he brought along with him um, caused a ripple effect that touched lots of other parts of the St. Louis music scene. So so the folks who, um, who played with him night after night, who toured with him, who he played with in other cities, I think um, is one of the most important parts of his legacy. Johnny Johnson, of course, is... Uh, the boogie woogie pianist who Johnny be good. Yes, who who was always kind of in um, Chuck's shadow in the popular imagination, but truly in his own right um, was a seriously world class musician who had um, his his own influence and his own sphere of uh, making things happen. And Steve, he gets a little space in the book. Oh yeah, um, I mean Johnny Johnson was the guy who hired Chuck Berry, and then Chuck Berry took over. <laughs> the band. Uh, but they they essentially created the songs together in a lot of ways. And we go into that in the book about what that meant and how those songs might have um, been credited to Chuck Berry. But Johnny had a big part in, in their creation. Why did Chuck Berry never leave St. Louis? I mean, never, never live someplace else. I, I think he very much liked it here. Uh, he had family here. He, um, you know, I actually went to high school with a couple of his kids, mm -hmm. so I know that that they think of themselves as St. Louisans in the same way that I think of myself as a St. Louisan. So I assume so did Chuck. Amanda, African American musicians really have always dominated the uh, the music scene here in St. Louis. Why is that? Do you think? You know, it's been. Um if you look at the history of St. Louis as a place separate from the music, this has always been a crossroads um, and the most 
northern southern city or the most southern northern city, depending on which side of that debate mm-hmm. you come down on. But it's been a place um, of transit. And it's been, um, you know, when the Great Migration happened, this was like a major city that people were in on their way to points north or points west. So I think just the mixing effect we had here, even back to the time um, pre-statehood of having, um, you know, a free black population and then later a free state just across the river when Missouri was a slave state. All of that contributed to being um, this great sort of um, uh, threshing floor for um, for lots of ideas and kinds of music and kinds of people. And Steve, the music kind of migrated from the, the south, from New Orleans uh, up the river, didn't it? Yeah, the river <laughs> was very important in that regard. Um, and we were a stop. Um, the great migration of African Americans from the south to the north, we were one of the stops. I mean, obviously, Chicago and Detroit got the most, but there were plenty of jobs in St. Louis, and a lot of them stayed here. A lot of people among them were musicians. Mm -hmm. So it's only natural that a lot of them would be really great. Many of the musicians we'll be talking about will be of the more modern era because we have we have a sound, a better sound from that time. You mentioned Miles Davis a couple of moments ago, Steve. Uh, his his importance to the world of music. Well, um, unlike almost anybody else, I mean, plenty of people have changed the course of a of a music genre once. Several have done it twice. Miles Davis did it five or six times. He f- he completely changed his style five or six times during his career, and everybody followed. And to this day, you can find records that are made by young musicians that are based on any one of these five or six different eras of Miles Davis. Yeah. He has quite a story, as you say, several stories actually built into one. Yeah, his uh, autobiography is, is essential reading. Yeah. What made him tick? He was several different people. <laughs> um <laughs> As I said, the autobiography is essential reading in that regard, but what made him tick was, A, he loved music, B, he was very concerned with, with um, the, the uh, role of African Americans in society and that he, he was aware of all of the obstacles that were in the paths of African Americans and he wanted to kind of break through those and he did some, some of the time himself and helped to work in the uh, the general sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's give a listen to Miles Davis, Mr. Davis. Davis playing So What. I'm in studio with Steve Hicks and Amanda Doyle. We're talking about St. Louis music history. Steve, back to you with regard to uh, Miles Davis. 
he was so smooth. Is he someone that you could hear and know who it was without anyone telling you? Absolutely. And and that, despite the fact that he had two or three different sounds, because sometimes yeah. he would play with the mute, sometimes without. Sometimes later on he would add electronics to it, but you always heard his tone no matter what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what was your impression of him and doing your research? Um, you know, I was just I was just looking again at the section of the book about Miles Davis and just kind of hearing um, the emotion that he seemed to not um, let himself express that much in his life. You can hear it in the music. And I was looking at Steve actually wrote um, the Miles Davis entry in the last the last part I love. He says for Miles Davis, it was just one more day at the office, one more chance for a shy man to tell us how he felt. And I think that really comes through. You can see in some of the photographs this kind of joy in his face when he's when he's playing the music, so. The photographs. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a ton of photographs in there. Where in the world did you find all these photographs? Well, that's why a book that took about eight months to write took about three months to publish. I mean, three, three years, years to publish <laughs> because, um, because the rest of the time was searching for the supporting material uh, to go with this. So a lot of the photos in the book um, came from archival sources like the Public Library, the History Museum Library, a lot of them came from individual collectors and fans, um, and we hope that what people will see when they pick this book up is uh, some views they haven't seen before. We have a lot of really, really great images that aren't the typical uh, glossy headshot of that person. Yeah, and just finding them had to be a chore, obviously, if it took you all that time to find these photos. What, what would the book be, and very, very quickly, Steve, what would the book be without the photographs? Um, I think it'd still be a good read, <laughs> but it wouldn't be as uh, as noticeable. It wouldn't be as, as special. Yeah. Well, we have to take a break. Let's do that now. We'll come back and continue the conversation. Lots to talk about. More music, too. We're talking with Steve Hicks and Amanda Doyle, and we're talking about St. Louis's musical history. Back right after this. And welcome back. We're going to continue our conversation with Amanda Doyle and Steve Hicks. They are the collaborators on a book called St. Louis Sound, an Illustrated Timeline. It's a big coffee table book. It's rich with pictures, rich with text, and talking about some of the people we all know and some of the people that we uh, are coming to know as a, as, a result of, uh, as a result of this book. How much of a variety is there in St. Louis music history? Well, every kind of music has, has come through here at one time or another. Blues, jazz, country, folk, rock and roll, hip-hop, uh, Americana. Uh, it's all been here. So it's, it's as huge as the United States, really. Yeah. And putting all this together, Amanda, you talk about three years to gather the pictures. What about uh, gathering the information? There's a lot of information about these musicians, the modern ones, of course. But what about the ones that uh, are not so modern? Well, um, again, this is where the mind of Steve Pick was an <laughs> enormous resource because he did um, have a lot of this already. But looking for people's stories, um, even a lot of oral histories, people talking about people they had seen play other places was pretty important. And then just looking back at... Um, some more unconventional sources, like when we get way back into the history, we talk in the book about the community bands that were really important yeah. to the different immigrant communities in St. Louis. So kind of combing, uh, looking for things that you wouldn't necessarily think of right away when you think, oh, we need to look for musicians. Mm -hmm. Did I call you Steve Hick before? I th if I did, I apologize. As <laughs> Steve Pick. I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> That's all right. Steve, with regard to your um, 
your interest in these things started very, very young. How did it evolve in your in, in your young lifetime? Well, I mean, I, I was buying records um, as a very young child and had my first stereo at the age of five. <laughs> but that said, at the age of seven, I switched to comic books and spent most of the next 12 years being immersed in that and only peripherally paying attention to, to music. So whereas I have now for 41 years been crazy about music, I started later in a lot of ways than most people who are really into it. So I had to had to have a crash course, which was easier then because there was less history to absorb. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I've I've done all right. And like I said earlier, I I immersed myself by doing everything you can related to music. Immerse yourself in what? I mean, is there a lot of literature out there that's yes. helpful in this regard? Oh yes, I mean I read every <laughs> magazine, I read all the books. Um, listened to thousands and thousands of records, went to a couple of thousand concerts, uh, talked to people all the time about music as long as I can remember. So, Did you have an interest in it, uh, Amanda, before you got involved in this project? Uh, oh, sure, yes. I have um, spent a lifetime around folks who, I mean, my parents and grandparents were very into different kinds of music at times in their lives. My grandpa played music um all his life, not professionally, but he was always in a band. So I was getting dragged to um, what I would always call the country music show, which was my grandpa and a bunch of guys picking and grinning at the VFW or uh -huh. the church fellowship hall or wherever. And then um, my dad took me to a lot of live shows when I was younger. He was very into Motown and Stax Records, that kind of music. So, yes. For sure. Steve Pick, have you had an opportunity to meet a lot of these people uh, of the more modern era? Uh, I've certainly met some of them. A lot of the um, the more recent artists in the book are actually still in St. Louis and um, are on, at a level where you can run into them at Schnucks or something. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's that's one of the fun things about about this town where you you see the people all over. Uh, who who are some of the people that that stand out that you might run into at Schnucks? Um, well, uh, one that's not in the book is Mark Chechik of the band Melody Den, who I've not only run into Schnooks, but at the UPS store in just the last few months. Um, but guys like uh, the members of Sleepy Kitty, I've run into them in stores, um, quite a few. I saw Pokey Lafarge once um, at the grocery store, and I just followed him. It seemed like he should be buying, like, whorehound candy and sarsaparilla uh -huh. and he was just buying vinaigrette salad dressing and i thought <laughs> well i mean i buy that i don't know it's disappointing i wanted a little more old-timey grocery shopping from him but what is the secret of pokey lafarge's success he reminds me a little bit of leon redbone but uh... well yeah but he's so much more upbeat and enthusiastic um I mean, the thing, the thing about Pokey is he's just, A, a lot of fun, and B, his songs are good. So you can't really define because he doesn't do what anybody else does. He just does what Pokey does. I think that's it, and people are drawn to it, and it seems so authentic, and he, he does. He has a joy about him that just comes through, I think. We should listen to a little bit of Pokey Lafarge to, for folks who may not be familiar with him to uh, ascertain exactly what you guys are talking about. Along the Mississippi River that stretched so wide I was said that I'd move down south If the girl I loved kicked me out the house But I was born in St. Louis Black dying in St. Louis The thing that makes me want to leave this town 
That is Pokey Lafarge uh, singing Born in St. Louis. You're right. He is a little more animated than Leon Redbone. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the greatest driving music, except you really have to watch your acceleration. I had to drive to Indianapolis a lot for work, and I used to listen to Pokey sometimes, but I would look down and be blasted <laughs> by at 95 and think, well, better back off that a little bit. And, and if you're driving a red car, you're done. <laughs> you're ab- absolutely done. We haven't talked very much about uh, some of the women, and there are plenty of them that uh, are influential here. Who comes to mind, uh, Steve? Well, the first one is Tina Turner. Um, Ike and Tina Turner both were enormously influential in St. Louis music history. They were huge stars in St. Louis in the uh, late 50s and early 60s, but Tina was um, just a special talent. There's nobody else that sounds like her and that sings the way she does. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly other names come to mind like Bonnie Bramlett, who um, was a St. Louis, well, I, I think she may have been in from Granite City, but she's certainly a part of the St. Louis music community. Um, who else is in the book, Amanda? Um, Jeannie Trevor is one of my all-time favorites. She is the most classy, inspiring lady to me and somebody that um, that you can still see playing around. People, of course, remember her most from her Gaslight Square days, I think. Um, and um, I also think of folks who are still just out playing right now, you know, a couple nights a week somewhere. Somebody like Kim Massey, who had a almost two-decade residency at Beale on Broadway. Um, And that's the thing about a lot of the folks in the book from the more recent times. There are people who keep playing out. You can still see them now. It's not, this is not meant to be uh, just a shrine in amber of great music, you know, that's somewhere up on a shelf. It's, that's the amazing thing about the St. Louis scene is how vibrant it stays. How long did uh, Ike and Tina Turner stay together? Stay together um, roughly 15, 18 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Interesting story to write, uh, Amanda. I mean, uh, there there that, are some trials and tribulations in that relationship. Yeah, that was that was actually a Steve write, a writing project, oh. so I'll let him take that one. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, it is, but we actually chose not to go into the, the personal relationship on that one because it was outside the scope of the book, um, and there's definitely a lot of controversy about it. it what what happened uh, was <laughs> ugly, and it's just a darn shame because they made such incredibly joyful music. In a very simple way, just remind our audience of what the problem was. Well, um, apparently Ike was um, known to beat her. Abusively, yeah. Yeah. Well, they sure made great music together, and we'll listen to some of that now because you can't take away the talent that the two of them had when they were performing together. Something on my mind Won't somebody please 
The unmistakable sound of Ike and Tina Turner singing A Fool in Love. I am uh, stalking, talking here with uh, Steve Pick and Amanda Doyle about music history here in St. Louis. There's one little piece of history, Amanda, I'll ask you about because it's an intriguing story and many musicians have uh, put it to music. And that is the story of Frankie and Johnny. Oh, celebrated case. Yeah, for sure. So one of the... Um, uh, that actually points to something that we should say about the whole book, which is that it's not um, simply bands and musicians, although many, many of the entries are bands and musicians. But we also included other important parts of the music ecosystem here in St. Louis. So that would mean venues, um, DJs, radio stations, and uh, things like that. And one of the things we wanted to include were some of these iconic mm-hmm. songs associated with St. Louis. So we've got St. Louis Blues, obviously, from W.C. Handy. And then we mentioned both um, Stagger Lee and Frankie and Johnny, because these have been interpreted the world over by um, probably more musicians than we can count between the two of them. Frankie and Johnny, speaking of a, a guy who treated her bad, though he was such a good guy, Frankie and Johnny were sweethearts and somebody done somebody wrong. Well, he done her wrong. <laughs> he as done I her wrong, it. and she and she killed he, her man. He, he cheated on her, and that was a bad thing to do because she was not going to have it. Um, and one of the things we talked about in this in this little write up is that this is representative of the kind of folk folk tradition that um, was prevalent before recorded music was so prominent, which is that people would take this song, add their own sort of localized lyrics, change it up a little bit, um, and so it could sound very different depending on where and when you heard it. And this was a, an assassination, if I can put it that way, that happened right in downtown St. Louis, mm-hmm. Louis, wasn't it? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Down well, by I, the Post-Dispatch headquarters, if we have I our think so. place yeah. right. Yeah. I know Stagger Lee was there. I'm not sure about Frankie and John. Oh, I could be but mixing it's near, up my murders. It's probably in that, yeah. <laughs> you can find out more about it in the book, folks. We have to take another break now. We're talking with Steve Pick and Amanda Doyle about St. Louis music history. We'll be back after this break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with uh, Steve Pick and Amanda Doyle. We're talking about uh, uh, music history here in St. Louis. Their book is St. Louis Sound and Illustrated Timeline. Amanda, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that you have other things aside from from music in it because uh, some of the venues are as famous as some of the people who performed in them, aren't they? I mean, I go back to... uh, well, certainly you have the Muni and you have other other venues. What are some of those that you're uh, citing in the book? 
Um, well, the Muni is a great one because it's been responsible. It's been so long lived for one thing and been responsible for bringing so much talent through town. Um, we talk about the Castelluma Ballroom. We talk about Club Plantation, some of the venues of Gaslight Square. Um, we mentioned, of course, uh, the symphony and its and its home later at Powell Hall, the Fox Theater. Um, we even one of my favorite things that I wrote for the beginning of the book was about the, <clears throat> excuse me, about the steamboats that would operate up and down the river um, in the early 1900s and what a key role they played in developing musicianship because you know riverboat music was a, was a thing. It was considered a key part of the experience, and it had a great influence on everything that came after. That goes back to what we were saying a little while ago, Steve, about the music coming from New Orleans up here. That's how it got here, basically. That's performances uh, Performances on the, on the boats. Yeah. You also uh, spend a little time with um, on record stores. How important are they to what we're talking about here and to the performers? Well, they've put food on my table for 35 years, so <laughs> <laughs> I, I've worked in record stores since 1983 and um, shopped in them long before that. I mean, they are an essential cultural uh, part of St. Louis, as far as I'm concerned. It's where I've met so many people who know music and where I've watched other people have conversations and they discover things going on in town and otherwise through record stores. And Steve and I were talking the other day about, I mean, a lot of people probably think record stores are sort of a throwback, but they're actually having a big resurgence now, just Vi- like bookstores. Vinyl is is back if it ever left. It did leave. It yeah. totally left. I mean, it, we could have gone out of business if it weren't for this resurgence of, uh, of vinyl. Why the resurgence? Um, I think a couple of reasons. One is kids always like to uh, experience something different from their parents. And so the people now who are over over 40 are CD generation and the people under 40 are like, oh, no, vinyl. It's like their grandparents, you know. Uh, Another thing is just the experience of vinyl is so different and so personal and such a closer relationship to the music itself because you have to get up every five songs and change the the record and that means you're in, you're involved in it in a way that is totally different from CDs or streaming so yeah it's a big uh, a big change and a very very cool thing to see Amanda, it's interesting today that uh, even recording artists today will talk about their latest record when it is not a record at all. Oh, right. And there are many young people today who have no idea, you know, what a record really is or was. Right. And so many of the current bands are not only issuing vinyl, but issuing these very elaborate packages and, you know, special pressings and like colored vinyl. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of cool to see because you do. It is a different experience. What has this digital age done to the world of music? (laughs) Expanded it, I I suppose. Well, it's made it way harder for musicians to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in, in, in Anecdotally, I've talked to musicians that used to be able to pretty much live off their their songwriter royalties that they would get a couple of times a year, um, now have to work second and third jobs because those royalties don't come in. Streaming uh, doesn't pay hardly anything. That's that's uh, that's a shame, uh, really, because uh, as Amanda, as uh, Steve has indicated, that's bread and butter. Right. Well, uh, and. At the same time, the other side of that coin is it makes it easier for some music to get discovered that mm-hmm. never would, right? You can easily um, find people on YouTube and on Spotify and places like that that you would not have otherwise been exposed to. But 
then if you're not paying for their music, you're not going to be hearing them for long, I guess. So. Yeah, I, do, I think one of the acknowledgments I put in here was uh, thanks to the Internet for making it so much easier to research now <laughs> than it was when I was in high school. For sure, yes. Well, uh, bottom line, Steve, is it a good thing or a bad thing overall? It's a thing. Um, <laughs> I think there's good and bad in it. Um, as friendly Bob Adams used to say, there's good and bad in everything, I guess. Um, the the good is this expanded universe of sound that you have access to, and the bad is it's harder for the individuals to make a living in it. It's mm-hmm. the same as with with uh, the press and you know mm-hmm. every other thing. It's it's bad for the individuals, good for society, maybe until it stops, which <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. What do you make of today's music? I think um, that there is a lot of very exciting things happening. Um, I have never, ever condescended. Well, I shouldn't say never because I did spend a few years in my 30s being kind of a jerk. But for the most part in my (laughs) life, I have never condescended to what the next generation Mm -hmm. is interested in, in hearing that's different from what I had when I was their age. And I think there's really exciting stuff happening in a lot of different fields. Yeah. You're very right about uh, a generational aspect of this, and every generation has its music. Mm-hmm. And by golly, uh, it's their music, and generally their parents uh, say, "What are you listening to, kids? <laughs> that's not that's not music." Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. That's that's, that's a why common... you have to brainwash them early and train them up in your music. So even when they go to their own stuff, they still will be okay with it when mom's music comes on. Well, it is it is actually hysterical because a lot of kids. Teenagers now are still buying some of the same records that were big when I was a teenager 40-some years ago because mm-hmm. Fleetwood Mac or Boston or, yeah, these bands that, that should have gone away in that <laughs> regard in the normal turn of generations, it's not going away at all. I can remember very clearly my father saying to me, what in the world are you listening to? <laughs> and what, what I was listening to, I remember this, this moment in my life was a song called Ebb Tide, sung by Roy Hamilton, which was more of a ballad than anything else. And to him, it was just, what is this (laughs) stuff? (laughs) And I I suppose I could have said, well, you know, I would have said the same thing about you're listening to Rudy Valley, which is a totally different (laughs) ballgame. Let's get back to uh, to, uh, some of the performers, particularly today's performers. The big star today out of St. Louis, I guess, is Nellie. Nellie is is probably the person who has sold more records than anybody who has ever come from St. Louis. And uh, that's partially because he began at the tail end of the heyday of record sales and partially because he's really good at it. <laughs> and he, um, he found a way to go from the world of hip-hop into country and pop and mm-hmm. sort of make... I mean, I almost think of how um, somebody like Elvis Presley made certain things palatable, right, for, mm-hmm. for that audience and maybe their parents. Um, I think Nelly did the same thing in a lot of ways. And so he was um, he was seen as this kind of like uh, gateway figure back and forth among all those worlds. How tough for someone like Nelly to, to make it? I mean, it's a tough business. It's a very competitive business. And, and you know, as with almost everybody who has ever made it, it's there. It's a combination of talent, drive, and pure luck. Right. It's mm-hmm. absolutely um, nobody makes it without a lot of luck. And but but he did he did have the talent and he did have the drive. Now he uh, was part of the Saint Lunatics, mm-hmm. which was a collective of Saint Louis rappers, and 
with the exception of Murphy Lee, who had a, a minor hit, mm-hmm. none of the other members of that group went on to success, even well, though they were pushed in the same way. Right, and I, it was kind of it throws back to some of those uh, some of the bands again from the 1950s and 60s. A decision was kind of made, like Nelly's going to be the one that we will forward on. Um, because you have to have that support from your label. You have to have that kind of PR push. Even if you're the most talented musician in the world, it may never happen for you if you don't have that. So There's not a St. Louis connection, although there is. I, I was thinking of Carol King, the pro show just playing here, and um, how she dominated things for so long. Um, because she she wrote it, she performed it, she 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 did everything. She she, well, had she started to... by writing songs for other people mm-hmm. and had enormous success yeah. at that. Yeah. Back to Nelly. Uh, I'm not familiar with it. We have a cut uh, of his called uh, Country Grammar. I'm his not familiar hit. with it. His first hit. Mm-hmm. See, I guess I was a little late in catching up. Tell me tell me about that. What can you tell me about Country Grammar? Well, it's first of all enormously catchy, and once you hear it, it stays in your head for a long, long time. And uh, it, the video is—it's a shame you can't see the video with it because, for one thing, he's wearing Blues jerseys and Cardinals, Cardinals. jerseys, and so it's—and the arch is in it. So it's—he it, was instantly iconically related to St. Louis. Well, we can hear him. with country grammar. Our time is winding down. Very, very quick answer to this one. Who is the most important musician out of St. Louis that no one's ever heard of? Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's a curveball. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, Steve? Well, I wouldn't say no one's ever heard of him because I have, but my favorite band in the last 30 years out of St. Louis is the Love Experts. Uh-huh. And uh, they're in the book, um, even though they've barely known to maybe 150 people. Uh, Do we have time to mention our festival? I was just going to get, we, we've got a little more than a minute left. Let's talk about that because you're taking the book to the next level very quickly. Yeah, um, five days, five shows over one week from uh, March 23rd through March 30th at five different venues. And we have three different local acts on each night representing um, <laughs> jazz, rock, blues, hip-hop, and Americana. And info can be found at STL Project. STLSoundProject.com. We'll put that information on our website at STLPublicRadio.org. And on April 4th, you've got another event. At Subterranean Books, we have our book launch party. Me and Amanda will be selling and uh, 
and and uh, signing books and sharing some video clips. And I love to come hear people's memories of their favorite bands in St. Louis too. It should be a fun conversation. April fourth at Subterranean Books. Well, Steve Pick and Amanda Doyle, I want to thank you so much for sharing this with us. And now people can uh, can go out and pick it up. Pick it up is an effort because it's a very heavy book, but <laughs> they can, they can certainly do that. Anyway, thank you both. Thank the you. book is St. Louis Sound and Illustrated Timeline. Great to see you. Good luck with the book. Thank you. That's it for us. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. One more time.